so today we are continuing our series uh, looking at various philosophical movements that really have a direct impact on all of our lives today, whether we realize it or not. Because what tends to come out of the philosophical classroom eventually trickles down into our everyday life and into everyday culture. And oftentimes we're imbibing it, we're taking it in and regurgitating it without even being conscious of it. It's just part of the air we breathe. And so if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, you know that Pastor Bruce looked at the philosophy of Gnosticism and how some of the themes you find in that philosophy are gaining a lot of traction today, especially as we see movements trying to divide uh, biology from our inner life and indeed validating that what goes on internally is more important than what is happening outside physically. Last week, Pastor Bruce talked about hedonism and just the sort of, uh, you know, life lived for pleasure, YOLO, you only live once type thinking. Uh, and, uh, and this week we are going to be looking at a philosophy, well really it's a philosophy of great despair. There's no hope behind it. We're looking at a philosophy that started, really it's gained steam in the last couple hundred years and, and probably a hundred years ago was when it was at its, its absolute peak, but it's still with us today, and that is the philosophy of nihilism. And what is nihilism? Well, to put it simply, nihilism is ultimately the belief that nothing matters and everything is meaningless. Pretty simple to understand. So with that, let's look at a Bible passage that seems to express this philosophy, although not endorsing it, found in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, says this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It, uh, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. 
What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow, or sorrow. Here ends the reading of the Gospel of Eeyore. (laughs) Don't feel bad if your heart is not all aflutter with joy and delight after hearing that proclamation because, well, that means you're probably normal. Nevertheless, it does help us see what happens when somebody begins to look at life through the lenses of despair or meaninglessness. So with that, let's pause for a word of prayer and then let's dive in. Father, we thank you today for your word that it doesn't shrink back from acknowledging the implications of our philosophical positions. It doesn't shrink back from telling us what could be and what things often seem like from our limited, finite perspective. So help us see why it is that folks would be led to believing such things while at the same time what your answer is to such ideas. Preach through my very imperfect feeble lips to your people, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So one of the beliefs that uh, Christians have held for 2,000 years, and I believe, I'm sure, uh, Jewish people have held for longer is a very simple axiom or a very simple bit of logic, which is basically this. uh, If there is no God, if, if everything is just an accident in a random, chaotic universe, that means that there is nothing governing this universe. And if there is nothing governing this universe, then as meaningful as things might appear to feel or to be at any given moment, In ultimate reality, everything really doesn't matter. We're all just uh, pieces of sentient space dust for a moment, for a blip in the long scheme of the universe, and eventually we'll join up to being non-sentient pieces of the universe again. Well... Uh, various atheist thinkers have, have acknowledged this as much as many don't want to because, of course, it's you know, really depressing to think that everything we do here really doesn't matter. And so there's been various ways of, of trying to deal with the implications of believing in a godless universe full of random chance. And so you have people like Woody Allen who, uh, in an interview after a film premiere, once said, I do feel that life is a grim, painful, nightmarish, meaningless experience and that the only way you can be happy, here's the solution, is if you tell yourself some lies or deceive yourself. Translation, the only way you can be happy in a meaningless universe is to pretend there's meaning, but we all know deep down it's not really there. At the same time, there has been some, and this would really be kind of where nihilism springs up with with people like Friedrich Nietzsche, 
kind of the most famous adherent of it. Uh, there has been some that have said, no, 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 instead of avoiding it or lying to ourselves, we have to embrace it. That is the brave thing to do. We must embrace the implications of a world that is random and chaotic. And so the only way to grow as a human is to acknowledge the truth. Nietzsche, as a matter of fact, would call all of his other fellow atheists cowards for not being willing to accept this because that would be the only way to grow. And so Bertrand Russell, the famous mathematician and philosopher, great skeptic of the Christian faith, by the way, as well, once said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. So he's just, he's just saying it head on, blunt. But of course, there's, there's always a point at which that doesn't become sustainable. And so some have, have just tried to embrace it by laughing at the absurdity of the universe. And, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a popular... A phrase or a hashtag you might see on Twitter every once in a while, which goes something like this, LOL, nothing matters. And usually with the shrug emoji, like, <laughs> whatevs, you know, we're all going to die, whatevs, it doesn't matter. And of course, there's only so long that you can pretend before it weighs down on you, it becomes unbearable. And it appears for whatever reason that the author of Ecclesiastes has gotten to a similar place, at least at the time that he's writing this, as he presents a world without God at its center. In this first chapter, he tells us that his, his goal was to become wiser than anybody. And the means by which he seeks to accomplish that goal is by experiencing everything the world has to offer. And he does. Throughout the rest of the book, he indulges in every kind of pleasure that one can have. And he gains an insane amount of money. He becomes incredibly wealthy. And he has all the power that he could ever want. And yet, in the final analysis, comes down saying, none of that actually gave me meaning and significance in life. All the things that we strive after. What did he say? It's a striving after the wind. You ever tried to chase the wind? You get his point. So why does he say this? Well, he gives a few, a few clues in our passage I want to briefly go over today, and then I want to present to you what God's solution is to it. First thing he mentions in the passage, and, and he sort of repeats it in various poetic ways, is, well, everything seems meaningless because nothing ever really seems to change. Nothing ever really seems to change. That's what he says in verses 9 and 10. He sort of sums it up saying, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. You've heard that phrase before. It's directly from the scriptures. Now, you may hear that and think, what's this old man talking about? I mean, in my lifetime, the internet was created for mass consumption. The iPhone is in my pocket right now. That wasn't there just a few years back. I mean, Uber just came into existence not all that long ago. I mean, there's tons of medical advancement, tons of technological advancement. So what is he talking about? I mean, is, is the author of Ecclesiastes just some sort of dullard that doesn't realize that there is always technological and medical advancement? Well, no. No, he, he's not a dunce. He knows better. But I think what he's getting at is the reality that no matter how much may change, everything at some level still stays the same because the people who are bringing about the change are still human beings. More on that in a little bit, but I, I just, 
It is interesting that at the turn of the last century, at the beginning of the 1900s, late 1800s, there was this uh, movement within sort of elite, especially academic culture, that really had this vibrant optimism about what humanity was capable of. And so there were all sorts of grand pronouncements about us entering into a new age, that we were on a, the dawn of a golden age, and indeed maybe even a utopia, a heaven on earth, because of all the technological advances that were being made. And so you can find quotes from secular humanists like H.G. Wells, one of our more well-known writers, proclaiming in 1937, just before World War II would break out, quote, can we doubt that presently our race, he means the human race, will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. H.G. Wells, 1937. But then what happened? The Great War happened, and all the technological advancement that was celebrated by H.G. Wells was found to be used to cause greater and greater destruction than the world had ever known before. Well, by the end of it all, H.G. Wells would write in 1946, shortly after the war, Quote, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. End quote. When the author of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the, sin, under the sun, that's what he's getting at. He's getting at this idea that no matter how advanced we get, human beings will still find a way to use that advancement to treat each other really poorly. In other words, as advanced as we get, it's still not dealing with a deeper issue. And what's the deeper issue? And the reason that no matter how advanced we get, the meaning can't be found there. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes addresses that too. And the second reason he, he sees the world as looking meaningless is because the world seems, it seems irreparable, beyond fixing. This is the way he says it in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, the author looks around at the world and he says, there's a bentness to it that seems like it can't be straightened out. There's a brokenness to it that seems it can't be fixed. When I was uh, 17, I was signed up to play in a basketball tournament called the Hillcrest Invitational Tournament out in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. A near, I mean, you could say fairly it's a bit of a metropolis. But anyway, um, 
as I gathered to play basketball, one thing that happens in basketball often is, you know, somebody passes the ball real quick to you, and if you're not ready, you get your finger jammed because you'll go out to catch it, and you're not, you're not quite ready to catch it. It'll hit right on the tip of your finger. Well, it did, and it hit my pinky, and I was, you know, young enough that I'm like, eh, whatevs, I'm just going to keep on playing and keep on going because I want to play basketball and I want to win the tournament. We didn't. Uh, anyway, played, played, played. A few days later, start to notice that my pinky is turning different colors. And long story short, I'm 43 years old today, and if you were to be up here very close, you could see that my left pinky is still bent. The author of Ecclesiastes looks around at the world, and he says, everything's bent, everything's broken, and it seems like there's nothing that can fix it. And of course, the rest of the scriptures testify to this abundantly. It's really all over the place that humanity's got something they can't fix themselves. And indeed, I, I would argue the best art has presented the same thing. Even if the artist is not particularly faithful themselves, there is a recognition with the best art that even the best of us have this issue, what Christians would call sin. So think of the most sort of well-reviewed series by the critics over the last number of years. Breaking Bad, The Wire, Better Call Saul, Curb Your Enthusiasm, you name it. All of those shows present your lead character as flawed. Nevertheless, there have always been those, and still today are those, that have believed that with enough tinkering, with enough social engineering, humanity just might be able to come up with the solution to the problem, that we can be unbent and, and perfected. And yet the cruel irony of history is that every time this has been attempted, in the name of creating heaven on earth, it's resulted in all that much more bloodshed to bring that kingdom about. A brief example of this is a Netflix documentary series that came out not that long ago called Wild Wild Country. It's about this cult of people that decided to settle outside of this very small town in Oregon and basically build themselves their own city. They were following a guru that they called the Bhagwan. And of course, the purpose of this city was to create a heaven on earth, some place where they could finally live in peace, away from it all, and create a brand new way of living as humanity. Well, of course, the small town residents weren't big fans of this gigantic movement with thousands of people suddenly moving in, and so they didn't make it easy on them. You know, they didn't allow legislation to be passed that would allow them to build what they wanted, when they wanted to build it, or whatnot. And long story short, by the end of the documentary series, you find out that as a response to the townspeople not giving them their way, the cult had become amassing masses of mass amounts of artillery and weaponry and had attempted to poison the water supply as punishment for not allowing them to build their peaceful, eternal utopia. It always happens, it always happens. It reminds me of a quote from G.K. Chesterton that I would advise you to learn because I think it is so wise and so insightful about human beings. He says this, beware those who love the world but hate their neighbor. It's really easy to talk about one's love for the world 
but where that actually manifests itself is in how you treat the person serving you at the restaurant and your next door neighbor who doesn't mow his yard as much as you'd like him to. That's where you see how much you actually love the world. And so what, what the author of Ecclesiastes is getting to is the problem behind it is, well, the problem with so many movements in human history is too high of an anthropology. What do I mean by that? Too much belief in the progress of humanity, that humanity really can fix themselves if they just work hard enough. And the Bible has a directly opposite anthropology, what we call a low anthropology, which means we're not able to do it. Sure, we can invest, we can involve, we can, we can work hard, and we can progress, great. I'm all for technological advancement. Nothing against that here from this pulpit. Just as long as we don't make the mistake of thinking it will actually fix what's deeply rooted in us. And that leads to the third reason for why the author sees the world as seemingly meaningless. And that is because even if you do acquire more wisdom and knowledge, you only end up acquiring more worry and grief. Man, like when he gets to that part where he's like, oh, I read everything, I know all the things, and it turns out it just made me more miserable. You're like, okay now, just stop. Just stop now. I mean, are you telling me that reading is bad, that learning is bad? No, of course not. He's not saying that. But he is acknowledging a truth, right? There's a saying, you know, that I've found myself saying as I get older and older, which is, the older I get, the less I know. I, I had a very clear sense of call to pastoral ministry when I was 19 years old. This is true. That's when I knew I was supposed to be a pastor. And so, me being zealous and youthful, I went to my pastor at the time and I said, God's called me to be a pastor, and so, you know, when you got a position open... Let me know. 19. And my pastor was very wise, and he thought, you know, Eric is youthful and zealous, but probably needs a little more time before we entrust him with the pastoral ministry. And so he never did open up a position for me to take over. And eventually I went to seminary, and I learned, and then I ended up becoming a pastor at 29, but it took 10 years of some growing and maturing, and I don't know that I was even ready then. But one thing I have been thankful for over the years is that my pastor recognized that I didn't know as much as I thought I did back then. Everything back then was much more black and white, and as I've gotten older, I've recognized that there's a complexity to things. And this is what the author is getting at. The more I know the more I worry. Why? Because it's too complex. <laughs> it's too difficult. All right, so you've heard his diagnosis of the problem. What is God's prescription to fix it? In this first chapter, to be honest, the author doesn't offer much. I mean, good gracious. I mean, the chapter ends with the word sorrow. But we always have to remember when we preach from one part of the Bible, we have to preach it in light of what the whole rest of the Bible teaches also. 
And then we get an accurate picture of who God is and how he has caused his creation to work. And when we do that, we see that the three main reasons the author of Ecclesiastes mentions in this chapter to believe the world is seemingly meaningless are simply not the whole story. So let's take them piece by piece. Let's take them in order. Does history repeat itself? Sure. But what is the Bible's overarching message? It promises that one day all of history is actually coming to a culmination, that it's not just this endless repetitive cycle, but that actually there's a, there's a grand narrative, there's a grand story that will conclude at the second coming of Jesus Christ in which all of heaven and earth are renewed. Is the world broken? Is it bent? Of course it is. But what is the Bible's answer to that? Is it unfixable? Not at all. In fact, Jesus Christ came to restore that which was broken, to redeem that which was enslaved, to forgive all sinners and declare people to be new creations in Him. And sure, in this life, is there more worry and vexation with more knowledge and wisdom? Of course. But the Bible also says that though we see as through a glass darkly, one day we will see clearly and it will result in not worry and vexation, but peace and joy forever. And of course, the means by which God has caused these answers to come to fruition, well, you know the means is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, breaking into history, ending the seemingly endless succession of history repeating itself. Through Jesus Christ being bent and becoming lacking himself on a cross, but then rising from the dead, he straightens us out and gives us so much more that we'll never lack again in our future. Through Jesus Christ, the one that the Apostle Paul refers to as, quote, the wisdom of God, we can believe with great confidence that this world is far from meaningless or absurd, but in fact is bursting, bursting at the seams with meaning and purpose. Psychologist and author Emily S. Ohani Smith was interviewed on PBS NewsHour and was asked, based on her research and other research out there, what it is human beings need to feel like their life has meaning and significance. And without flinching, she answered unhesitatingly that the number one thing we need is to see ourselves as being part of a bigger story and contributing to it. Now, to my knowledge, this doctor is not a Christian, but she hit on exactly what God says he's doing to you and I. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are integrated into his grand story. And yes, he says that he's using us to contribute to the culmination of that grand story, that he is working in you and through you in all of your various vocations in life to bring about this grand story. So it turns out, LOL, everything matters. Everything matters. It matters how you treat your fellow employees that you work with because they're created in the image of God. It matters how you treat your family 
It matters how you drive on the road. It all matters because God is in the midst of it and working through you. I'll wrap up with a quote from a favorite author, Morton Kelsey. He sums up the whole thing really well. Makes the greatest contrast you can make and leaves it hanging for what it is. Quote, if we are indeed part and parcel of a meaningless universe, the kind in which Jesus Christ could be murdered on a cross with no resurrection, then being depressed only makes good sense. He's right. Under these conditions, the sensitive and sensible person will be depressed, despair, and see no meaning. But, Kelsey says, I have discovered only one event in history that redeemed all the evil for me and gave me hope in spite of it, the resurrection of Christ. Allowing the resurrected one to be constantly present, I can deal with all the evil suffered by Jesus, by my friends, and by me, and still get up and face the day because it all matters. End quote. Father, it is tempting at times when we are struggling to hear the voices around us that want to say nothing matters. It is tempting for us to give in to that. There are seasons in which we wonder what you're doing and we can't see clearly. We wonder how you're working. It seems that the author of Ecclesiastes was in such a season when he wrote what he did. And yet we know Jesus Christ provides the solution to the problem. So help us walk out of here seeing everything we do as significant and meaningful. Help us look through those lenses that we might be changed. I ask this in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray with one voice. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.